Hello, friends. Thank you for tuning in. We got a great show for you this week. Before I introduce the guest, as always, please follow, subscribe, rate, and review the show. Uh, it helps boost the, the, the podcast, grow the audience, get us more exposure, and ultimately grow the podcast to the place where I think it can be and get the best guests and just keep expanding and expanding onwards and upwards, as they say. So please, that really helps the show. Additionally, Go follow me on social media, R-O-Y-B-T-Z on Instagram and R-O-Y underscore B-N-T-Z on Twitter. You can subscribe to the newsletter, which gives you access to updates, occasional blog posts, news about guests and the future of the show. And most importantly, you can get the podcast conveniently in your inbox every week. Finally, please consider supporting this independent podcast. I made the decision not to work with sponsors on this podcast. I wanted to be completely independent. So for the price of a cup of coffee, you can support this independent podcast. And uh, yeah, I really do appreciate that. Also, if you want to start your own podcast, I have a full tutorial that covers everything you need to know, soup to nuts, A to Z, how to start, grow, execute, market, uh, reach out to guests, everything you want to know about starting a podcast. This has it. So I will leave a link in the show notes, make it easy for you to find. And yeah, go check it out. All right, let me introduce this week's guest, Anna Lemke. Anna is a professor of psychiatry at Stanford University School of Medicine and chief of the Stanford Addiction Medicine Dual Diagnosis Clinic. She is the author of the book, Dopamine Nation, Finding Balance in the Age of Indulgence. And this book is extremely popular. She's been doing the podcast route. She's been on all the the best, biggest, and most popular podcasts out there. And I want to have her here as well, because I think this is a very important conversation to have. I think addiction on a more broad level is starting to creep up into every facet of our lives through digital. And while addiction used to mean drugs, alcohol, cigarettes, maybe food, stuff like that. Nowadays, you see it in a much more prevalent and insidious way through our phones, through our computers, through social media. It's just controlling every facet of our lives. And that's not to be Mr. Doom and Gloom. It's not all bad, but it is uh, something to point out. It is something to be aware of, and it is an important conversation for us to have as this is just something that we have on us all the time. And we cover other things. It's not only social media and tech, but addiction at large. And so this is extremely fascinating podcast, very insightful. And I think it could be useful to a lot of people. So I hope you enjoy this week's episode. Here is Anna Lemke. Enjoy the episode, everyone. The Genuinely Interested Podcast. Anna, how are you doing this morning? I'm good. Thank you. How are you? I'm awesome. Thank you for joining the podcast. Uh, I've heard you on a bunch of podcasts, as I just mentioned before we started recording. And I have to say, you're as a guest, you're one of the most honest and open people I've, I've ever heard uh, speak on podcasts, which is extremely rare these days. So I just wanted to kind of acknowledge that and, and you know throw some praise your way. Oh, thank you. You know, I've really enjoyed the podcast, I think, because I'm just... 
I like people and I'm curious about people. Yeah. And I'm also honored, of course, that people are interested in my work and want to interview me. So it's been really fun. Yeah, no, you do. You do an amazing job. I've enjoyed all the podcasts uh, that I've listened to. So you are the author of Dopamine Nation, Finding Balance in the Age of Indulgence. Uh, can you give the audience maybe a bit of background for people who may not know who you are? Sure. I am a psychiatrist. I'm on the faculty here at the Stanford University School of Medicine. I teach, I do research, I see patients. Um, I have been here for a long time. I came out to Stanford for medical school and I essentially never left. And um, yeah, that's kind of what I do. I specialize in addiction treatment. Okay. So that's my area of subspecialty, but I treat all kinds of co-occurring psychiatric disorders from psychosis to depression to anxiety disorders, you name them, you name it. What, I guess, what prompted you to write the book? Um, is this just from, you know, how many decades of you in the field? Is this something you've, you know, been thinking about for a long time or just something recent that you wanted to put out? Yeah, so these are definitely ideas that have been percolating for a long time, um, especially as my practice has changed over the last 20 years. It's changed in the sense that I've had a massive shift in my philosophy around mental health treatment, but I've also seen increasing numbers of patients who are really unhappy, addicted to a variety of substances and behaviors, and yet, you know, have all the good things we could hope for in life, good parents, good friends, good jobs, um, you know, clean air, relative wealth. And so I, I really became very curious about why is it that even when our lives are good and we have all of those um, things that, you know, we do equate with um, sort of human thriving, yeah. why is it that we're all, so many of us are still struggling so much? And that's sort of where the ideas of Dopamine Nation kind of came into being. Okay. So I have a lot of questions for you, but before we get into, into all that, maybe just we can kind of lay the, the groundwork and touch upon a few things and maybe you can explain for people who may not know the the exact things. So what is dopamine? I'm sure everyone's heard of dopamine, but maybe not everyone knows exactly what dopamine is. Can you explain that? Yes. Dopamine is a chemical in the brain. It's a neurotransmitter. Neurotransmitters are molecules that bridge the gap between neurons. That gap okay. is called the synapse. So neurons are the very long spindly cells in our brains that conduct the electrical signals that make the circuits that make our emotions, thoughts, feelings, you name it. But those neurons do not touch end to end. There's a little space between them. That space is the synapse and neurotransmitters are the molecules that bridge that gap to lend a finer sense of control okay. um, to that neural circuit. Dopamine is one of many neurotransmitters. Um, it's, it's not the only one, but it is the most important neurotransmitter to the experience of motivation, reward, and pleasure. And it's the neurotransmitter that is intimately involved in the disease of addiction, which is a brain disease. And what is dopamine deficit? Or dopamine uh, deficit state? I don't know. Right. Which, which is the correct one? Yeah. So, so dopamine deficit state. So we all have a tonic baseline level of dopamine firing. So dopamine is being released in a part of our brain called the reward pathway, which is a, a very old part of the brain that's been conserved across millions of years of evolution and across species. It's virtually identical across species. Mm -hmm. And dopamine is always being released uh, in that 
part of the brain called the reward pathway. Um, when we do something pleasurable, more dopamine is released. Um, the signature feature of things that are addictive is that they release a whole lot of dopamine all at once. And so hence are very reinforcing and we want them to do them again and we'll often work very hard to try to get that substance or behavior uh, that releases a lot of dopamine because we're wired to do that. We're, we're wired to approach pleasure and avoid pain. It's what's kept us alive in a world of scarcity and ever-present danger. So um, the dopamine deficit state is what happens in the brain if we continually bombard the reward pathway with a lot of dopamine. Essentially, the brain has to adapt to that increased dopamine by down-regulating dopamine transmission, dopamine receptors, dopamine production. And over time, it will eventually go into what we call a dopamine deficit state, which is really akin to a clinical depression. People feel anxious, depressed, irritable, can't sleep. And the lesson here is that if we continually indulge in highly reinforcing drugs or behaviors, we will eventually get into a dopamine deficit state as our brain tries to compensate for too much dopamine and we will become depressed, unhappy, however you want to characterize that. So that's what a dopamine deficit state is. So that we, we need to find some sort of a balance, right? Because I feel like it, I just keep hearing that everything is addicting and everything is addictive and people are addicted to everything. Mm. And it's just, if it's food, if it's coffee, if it's alcohol, if it's social media, if it's porn, if it, we'll, we'll get into all this stuff later, but is, is, is it just about finding balance and is it getting harder to find balance just because everything is programmed and wired to make us consume more of it, right? The food, they're engineering it for us to consume more. Social media, it's engineered for us to consume more. Everything is about making us buy more of it. So it's getting harder to find that balance. Yes, exactly. And you know, that, that's why the book is called Finding Balance in the Age of Indulgence. It's not about never having pleasure. That's not the message at all. But the message is that it's much harder to find balance in a world in which everything has literally become drugified. Everything has been made more accessible, more bountiful, more potent, more novel. These are all things that will release more dopamine, such that we really need to think about inviting kind of a new asceticism or restraint okay. into our lives as a way to compensate for an environment that's absolutely flooded with these cheap pleasures. And then the last thing, if you could define, I mean, I guess clinically, uh, what is the definition for addiction? Hmm. Yeah. So the broadest definition for addiction is the continued compulsive use of substances or behaviors despite harm to self and or others. A shorthand for the DSM-5 criteria, that's the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, which is the compendium that psychiatrists and other mental health care providers use to make mm -hmm. these diagnoses, can be briefly summarized into the four Cs, control, compulsion, consequences, and cravings, plus tolerance, needing more and more of a drug over time to get the same effect, and dependence, experiencing withdrawal when the drug is no longer available. Understand. Okay. Um, you were part of the documentary, the Netflix documentary, The Social Dilemma. And that was a sobering documentary. I know at the time, many people that saw it, they deleted their, you know, social media accounts. 
including myself for or a very brief period of time. And, um, but they all came back, at least everyone I know, I'm sure maybe some people didn't. And for me, it was interesting because even the people on the documentary uh, who knew the hacks, the brain hacks, who knew what was happening behind the scenes, they still were on Twitter and they still were on social media and they still were on the phone. Is it just an unbreakable addiction? And, and, and like, I actually more than the other addictions, I want to talk today a lot about social media, but yeah, like from your perspective, is it just one of those things where it's almost unbreakable? Well, I think there are a couple of things happening in parallel here. On on the one hand, social media is inherently addictive. That doesn't mean that everybody is addicted to it. That means that those of us who are vulnerable to social media addiction will really struggle with the platform. Why Why is it addictive? Because it's essentially drugified human connection. We are evolved over millions of years to connect with other people. We are tribal creatures. It's what's kept us alive, protected us from predators, allowed us to find mates. And what social media has done is made those human connections, which by the way, human connection releases dopamine. So when people like us, when they when they appraise us, when when they have the same emotion at the same time that we're having it, all of that releases dopamine mediated by oxytocin, the love mm-hmm. hormone. So what social media does is just like turbocharges all of that, you know, turns it up yeah. to 11 with zero effort. Right? I don't even need to get off the couch to go meet the people. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's inherently addictive. And, and so that's part of the problem. But I think another really important piece of this is that so many of us now actually live our lives online that even when we try to get off and go and create a life in real life, there are no people there, right? Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, one of the things that I sort of talk about is as a parent, you know, when I was a kid, we all went out to the back alley. Nobody communicated with anybody else. You just knew there would be people there, (laughs) right? And you would play hide and seek and kick the can and you name it, right? And now I would love to, you know, encourage parents to send their kids to the back alley. But the truth is there will be no kids there. They will yeah. not be there, right? Yeah. And unless, you don't want to meet the person in the back alley that's there right. now. <laughs> <laughs> could be, could be. <laughs> but unless you intentionally organize it, there's no there there. Yeah. And so, and so it's really a kind of a vicious cycle, right? Where we are now really inhabiting the virtual world in a much more invested way than we are inhabiting our real lives for many of us anyway, unless we intentionally create these communities to, to try to bolster our real life interactions. And I think people are beginning to do that. Plus, I also want to add that there are wonderful communities online. So it's not all, you know, it's not all impoverished. There are meaning, we can make meaningful, intimate, powerful, positive connections online, but it's all of that residual where we're just sort of scrolling and swiping and tapping. And we don't really want to be there anymore, but we can't pull ourselves away. That That's that in-between piece that we need to all, we all need to work on. Yeah. I feel like when it comes to, to dating, I, I, I was probably kind of the, the, the in-between. I've never used, you know, Tinder or any of these dating apps, but as you know, I'm, I met my wife like what ten years ago, and at the time, I remember it was just starting to become popular. 
And I remember I would go to, to bars and, you know, I have a lifetime of being rejected by, by women that I approach at bars. And it's just, it's, it's, a, it's something you do as a guy, right? It's a, you, you, you go once, you get rejected, you go twice, you get rejected, third time, maybe you get a, you know, the girl's number, you go on a date, great. Rinse, recycle, repeat. And that's just <laughs> part of, but I remember I would see guys and, and girls at bars, instead of interacting with the person next to them, you know, cause that is, that can be frightening, right? You can get rejected. Someone can say something mean to you. It's not the best feeling. And it takes a little bit of uh, courage. They would all be swiping. Yeah. Like they'd be on the phones trying to find someone, but not looking around the room, trying to find someone, you know, on the virtual world. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Really, really disturbing. Right. And we're all seeing that in different ways in, in all walks of life. And it's really concerning because the, the way that we feel really most alive mm-hmm. is by having authentic interactions in the moment with our environment, meaning the people, the natural world, challenges that arise, you know, even if it's just like driving our car in traffic, right? That's an interaction that we process and grow from. The problem with the interactions that occur online is that we can, first of all, the matrix is created by other humans. It's not created by nature. Yeah. And we, we can control those experiences such that we never have to tolerate any real modicum of distress. And without having to tolerate distress, there's really no opportunity for real growth. Yeah. And this is a this is a real problem. What do you think happens 20 years from now with, you know, I'll I'll focus more on on the younger generation that grew up on phones and social media and and filters and the metaverse and and, and crypto and, you know, finding, I think I I read some of the 50%, probably even more by now of of people that that find their significant other, it's through online. What happens like when this nonstop 24-7 nonstop streaming content and and not even talk about what's happening with uh with you know um the news and journalists and and all all the disinformation that's online what happens to them cognitively but also socially like are are they just gonna grow up to not gonna be able to interact with people in 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 the real world Mm, yeah see i don't even think we need to look 20 years ahead i think we're, (laughs) we're already there you know, I think the, the millennials in particular are the generation that that essentially grew up with streaming content and with phones. You know, phones sort of emerged um, in the early, very early 2000s. Yeah. And so they've been around for 20 plus years. Um, yeah, I mean, I think, again, I, I don't like to come out as like the doomsday yeah, yeah. sort of. But I mean, clearly I wrote the book because, because I am really concerned about the dark side of all of this interacting with devices and the internet. And, you know, because it is this constant bombardment of, of, of dopamine essentially that results from um, watching YouTube, being on Instagram, tweeting the likes, the games, whatever it is. Um, I do see, I do think that the, the sequelae or the con- consequence is increasing sadness, depression, anxiety, insomnia and addiction. Yeah. And I am and I am seeing that in my practice. And in my practice, I've had the opportunity to actually do an intervention where I say, you know what, I want you to eliminate 
all screened all devices for a month. Let's see what happens to your mood, anxiety, sleep. And again and again and again, <clears throat> when my patients are willing to do that experiment, excuse me, <clears throat> what they what they discover is that they feel a heck of a lot better um, yeah. after abstaining, which is why, you know, which is why I really feel motivated to encourage people to try to abstain for a month and see what it does. Because when they see for themselves how they feel after not engaging 24-7 with this online content, they can then make an informed decision going forward. Like you did, you got off social media, now you're back on it, but I bet you're back on it in in a way that is more conflicted than it was previously. It's more aware. More aware. Least. Okay, even better. I, right. I, I, I would hope so, at least. But it's also more, um, I'm trying to create more than I consume. Mm, good. So, so instead of aimlessly scrolling up and down and, and just getting mad about what that person said and what that person said, I am trying to, yeah, just more of a creative outlet. And, nice. and, and just, yeah, just consuming less, I think. Right. So that's wonderful, right? So after abstaining and, and, and seeing how your life was tri- different and how your psyche felt different, you went back to using, which most people do, and that's fine and good, right? Because that's that's the world we live in now, yeah. right? You have to sort of live in a cave, not to interact online. And that's not what I'm encouraging. But you went back with kind of a, a conscious awareness of what you didn't want to be doing and effortful engagement in being more creative and less mm-hmm. reactive online. And those are, those are great things. Yeah. And not to be, I, I do, I don't like the, the, the doom porn that's out there. It is out there. It's very convincing. It's very um, addictive. There's, you know, there's many, many subreddits that, you know, from collapsed all these others that it's almost like, yeah, being aware is good, but these people seem to be really into it. Like they want it to happen. They want these prophecies to unfold. Mm. And, and that's, I don't know, it's a, it's a very scary thing. But I feel like social media is the only, for lack of a better term, acceptable addiction, right? Because mm. alcohol, cigarettes, drugs, overreading, uh, there's things that we, we, we don't condone, Right. I'm not going to give cigarettes to my 12 year olds. Right. I'm not going to give alcohol, but I will give them a phone and I will, you know, maybe limit their social media use and gaming use, but I'm not going to completely, you know, I'm I'm not, I'm still going to allow it. Yeah. And and that's probably the right thing, right? Walking that middle path, although it's hard. And so I think it's really important with kids to make them aware that social media in moderation and used wisely and used with a sense of good citizenship is, is, is okay. Is a good thing yeah. um, potentially in their lives, but that there are all of these other potential problems that, that they need to be aware of and understand why it could happen, especially thinking about the neuroscience. Yeah. And I think that's why it's important to talk about it because alcohol, drug, all those things that it's just, it's, it's common sense, right? Most people know, I shouldn't do it or I should do it very little or right. it's not really good for me. And with social media, it's just, it's everywhere. And, and our phones are everywhere, right? Like my mom would call me sometimes be like, your dad's been on Instagram for four hours, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> so it's just, it's like, it's age agnostic. 
But yeah. I believe that if you are a teenager, I, I can't, I couldn't even fathom having a phone when I was a teenager with the trappings of social media, with just writing stupid things and being mm. on it and scrolling. I don't know. I don't know if I would be able to handle it if I was a 15 year old, you know, with a phone. Yeah, well, thank you for your humility around that, because the truth is some 15-year-olds really cannot handle it. Mm -hmm. And those kids need more guidance, more guardrails, um, you know, more monitoring, um, more structure around how much time and when they can be on, what they can be can use. Other 15-year-olds um, can figure it out. You know, they, they just, they're more mature. Or that's not their particular drug of choice or whatever it is. But you talked about your dad. And I think this is a really important and less discussed topic is the impact on the elderly. There's not much data on this, but there are growing numbers of older people who are spending enormous amounts of time on Netflix, on YouTube, on Instagram. And this is really concerning too, right? Because they're not moving their bodies. Mm -hmm. They're not going to the senior center and you know, meeting up with other people. So isolation is it's already a big problem among the elderly and now it's potentially an even bigger problem. Yes, it's true that for you know people who are like geographically isolated or isolated by virtue of disability, the internet can be a great way to connect, but it's also now, I think, driving people who could connect away from doing that, including, including older people, even people living like in fancy um, sort of nursing homes or fancy sort of retirement homes are not really, you know, socializing as much as they used to. Yeah. And, 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 Again, to the point of not to be the doom and gloom person, Yuval Noah Harari essentially said that, the, you know, these uh, mechanisms, these algorithms, these people, that the, the programs, everything is, is hardwired to get to know you better, right. to know your likes, to know your dislikes, to know what ticks you off, what you're into, what you're not everything about you and they do that. And cause you're willingly, you know, you're inputting that info. They're seeing what you're clicking on. If it's, and, and that's why this, I think, is so, is so different, but how do we even control that? If they're getting to a point and it's just getting better and better and the technology is advancing, if they're getting to a point where they just know us so well and they're essentially hacking our, our, our pathways, our, our, uh, our mind, our brains, our emotions, everything, how do we even stand a chance? Yeah, well, so one, one thing I want to say first is when we talk about the way that the AI, AI algorithms learn us and then proffer things to us that they know we will like, we almost always talk about that through the lens of that's so horrible. And I, 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 I don't want that to, they, they can't do that and they shouldn't do that. And, and you know, um, that's disgusting. But, but the truth is, I have personally experienced that very positively. Like it's meeting up with an old friend who knows you well and say, oh, hey, I read this book. I think you yeah. would like it because you like this other book. And so I have to have the experience where when I'm feeling lonely and then I'll go on there and like, what's, well, what is, what is YouTube suggesting for me today? <laughs> and it feels good. It doesn't, be, I know exactly what the algorithm is doing. I know why they're doing it. And yet I, I will want it. I invite it. It feels good. It feels like a friend who knows me. Um, and that, that feels good to be known in that way. So I just wanted to put that in there because we almost never talk about, you know, that piece of it. 
No, it's great. Sometimes like I'll get like recommendations for a new snowboard or stuff that I'm right. like, oh yeah, that's great. <laughs> but it's just like, it's, it's kind of like alcohol, right? Like alcohol, a, a glass of wine after a long day is it's great. It's good for cholesterol. It relaxes you, but 20 glasses isn't good. And right. I feel like this is the same. It's good because it does give you good recommendations sometimes, but then sometimes you're like, oh snap, six hours passed and I'm still on YouTube. Like what happened? Oh, Where did my day go? Absolutely. And and part of the way that it does that, I think, is, again, because it feels like a friend. I mean, even mm-hmm. when we know it's doing it intentionally to keep us clicking, it doesn't feel that way in the moment. It feels comforting, you know, that we're known. It can feel comforting to be known. But yeah, you're absolutely right, which is why my, my number one recommendation in Dopamine Nation is to take a considered extended break from technology, whether you do that together with others, um, whether you do that together as a family on a vacation. we Our family just took a tech-free vacation. It was fantastic. Much be- went much better than I thought it would. Wow. Um, yeah, which was nice, right? Because I have four teenagers and uh, they were initially reluctant to leave their phones behind. I'm but, sure. Yeah. But uh, you know, when we got to where we were going and we had no phones, it was like, well, I guess we'll talk to each other. And we had great conversations and they were extended, interesting conversations. I was glad my kids can still have those conversations with us. So, <laughs> so I really encourage people to, to, you know, build these breaks into their lives. Just first of all, as a, as a way to reset reward pathways, but also just as a way to remind ourselves of what it is to be disengaged from this technology and, and what the upsides are. Can addiction be used in a positive way? Or maybe is it, it, it may be categorized differently. But if I take someone like Elon Musk, who reportedly works 16, 18 hours a day, um, and he's achieved unbelievable things or someone like Michael Jordan who would practice longer and harder than anyone else. There are people out there who are obsessed with their craft and they've been able to, you know, achieve incredible feats and they do all have that obsessive gene about them. Can people channel addictive personality to produce greatness? Well, you know, it's a great question. And I think it really depends on how you define greatness. In our our culture, we define greatness as becoming vastly rich, vastly famous, um, or just, you know, achieving some spectacular accomplishment that distinguishes us from the people around us. And there have been many cultures, you know, across human history that have defined greatness in very different ways. Just thinking of a contemporary isolated culture that defines greatness in a really different way, you can look at the Amish. The Amish forbid people from taking credit for particular accomplishments. If people start to you know, invest in some passion or hobby or um, way of farming and then take pride in that, that's considered contrary to living in alignment with um, their religious faith. And so that's considered not a good thing. So I think it's, it's it's good to take a really big step back and look at what is the meta structure, um, you know, by which we have defined greatness. And in this culture, you know, our heroes are Mark Zuckerberg, um, Elon Musk, yes, Michael Jordan, you know, people who have um, separated from the tribe and achieved sort of an ind- very individualistic kind of a goal. But that's not really the only way to think about, you know, the good life or what it means to really live well. But can you channel that what would other be otherwise be destructive uh, behavior into something good? 
you know, it doesn't have to be, again, I, I was just taking them as an example. It can be anything, right? It can be, I don't know, uh, working in the shed and, and building something or, I don't know, uh, being a hiker, like whatever it is that you're into, but just channeling that energy that would otherwise be destructive into something uh, positive and productive. Oh, absolutely. You know, I think that's a, an important point. And it's one of the ways that people with severe addiction to things like drugs and alcohol or pornography actually do get into recovery is to take that sort of obsessive um, energy, let's say, and that tenacity and, and put it into something else. Sometimes that something else is their recovery. Sometimes that something else is something else altogether, like um, a particular form of exercise or a particular intellectual endeavor. Okay. And of course that that's can be life-saving and is much better than drinking yourself to death. No, no doubt about it. <laughs> um, but as I talk about in, in my book, you know, you, we have to be wary that we don't then take that to, to an extreme because I think ultimately um, what we're looking for is again, that, that level balance some, somewhere in the middle, which is going to be a different place for different people, for, for people who are really, really driven and need an enormous amount of friction in their lives to feel happy, you know, their happy place is going to be maybe a more driven kind of place, more challenges um, so that they can feel relaxed. Whereas other people might not need that kind of friction in their lives. I understand. So you would categorize something like someone like Elon Musk as, as, as unhealthy, like his, cause he says like he works 16 to 18 hours a day. I wouldn't, I, I don't think I could do that on a regular basis. And uh, someone I know, like uh, just uh, off the top of my head, Dana White, who's the head of the UFC, is the president, same type of character, works 14, 16 hours a day. And they've both, you know, achieved greatness. They're extremely wealthy, uh, very well liked or disliked, depending who you ask. But yeah, like, are, is that not healthy? So I would never try to diagnose somebody who, you know, wasn't a patient of mine. So I, I, I wouldn't, yeah, I wouldn't, I wouldn't, uh, you know, I wouldn't say one thing or another about Elon Musk because I really don't know him. Mm -hmm. I and mean, I don't know what his subjective experience is, but given my knowledge of human beings and the wide variety of people that I've seen, including very successful, very wealthy people, I think we're all pretty much equally happy or unhappy in our lives. I don't think people who have achieved that kinds of that kind of wealth and fame are any happier than people who haven't and often are much unhappier. Um, and again, you know, the, you know, what is the definition of, of success? You know, you're right. Many people would uh, look at Elon Musk and say, oh, he's, but I don't know. I mean, he's probably missed out on a lot of things in his life yeah. um, because he hasn't had the time to do them, For you sure. know, like, like spend time with family possibly. Um, so, so it's always a trade-off. Yeah. Yeah. There's no perfection. Um, I guess it's just kind of how you want to live your life and hopefully you can, you know, you can do that. You can follow the path that you want to, that you want to lead. Um, I want to ask you a question that's a little weird. Um, Great. <laughs> I, I love weird questions. <laughs> cool. That's right up my alley. I'll tell you why it's weird. Cause maybe from someone from the U S I wasn't, I've only been here eight years. Um, so I wasn't born here. So I, I kind of have the view of someone coming into the country. And like, I think I've assimilated pretty well and I grew up on a lot of American TV. So I'm, I'm, I'm pretty into the culture. Do you see differences in the way excitement, which is, dopamine, right? 
is happening or, or becoming part of the fabric of society in the U.S. Um, differently from maybe other countries. Uh, I'll tell you what I mean. Here, people get excited very quickly um, about a lot of things. It's like, oh my God, I'm so excited. And like, all right, we're going to have lunch, right? And that's, and, and I remember coming here, I was just like, oh, they get excited really quickly. Like, <laughs> you know what I mean? And when you go to Europe, when you go to Israel, when you go to other countries, it's much more flat. Mm. There's not this peak, this this like peak in in, in excitement mm. over you know otherwise mundane things like you know going to a bar or going to a party or I don't know a lunch, and because it's a dope it's a dopamine hit essentially. Um, I guess like is are you just seeing differences if at all? Maybe that's not even something that's been on your radar. But have you seen anything along those lines? Well, or do you need me to maybe, maybe I'm, I don't know if I'm, I hope I'm asking the question correctly. Yeah, no, I, I mean, there are definite cross-cultural differences when it comes to how we conceptualize pleasure and pain. Uh, I mean, I'll, I'll give you a corollary example. You know, the opioid epidemic was triggered by the over-prescribing of prescription opioids for minor and chronic pain conditions here in the United States, leading to several generations of individuals dependent on and or addicted to opioids. Um, and that's because in part, um, you know, our culture is that we really shouldn't be experiencing any kind of pain. And if we're experiencing any pain at all, the doctor isn't doing their job. Um, <clears throat> and it's going to set us up for more pain in the future. But in, in Europe, you know, if you have a minor uh, pain problem, you know, throughout Europe, the doctor's kind of like, well, you know, you'll be all right. Take Suck a couple ass, right? Take a couple. It'll it'll pass. You know, time will heal. Mm -hmm. And not not only are our doctors more acculturated to say that, but patients are more acculturated to hear that. So I think you are tapping into something that's real and true around how a culture can orient on the experience of pleasure and pain, and then have a big impact on how the individuals living in that culture experience pleasure and pain. And I, I, I didn't, I wasn't aware of this difference about like getting excited about, you know, little things in a way it's sort of sweet. It's like, Oh, Oh, for sure. You know, it's like the U S Oh, I guess we're like, we're like little babies. Like, you know, you give us <laughs> any little thing and we're excited. So, you know, it, it's, it maybe speaks to the newness of our country. When you think of the age of, you know, the European countries or, well, Israel's a, a new country in some ways and a very old country and others, yeah. certainly, and certainly yeah. a very old culture. Um, you know, I, I, those, it's interesting to hear your experience of those differences. Yeah. No, I remember coming over and, and, you know, it was back home. I'd be like, all right, you want to go for grab dinner? All right, cool. Let's, let's meet. And then he'd be like, I'm so excited about dinner. Like you, I, I would, I would, like visibly, I would see people get excited about things that I would take for granted. And, yeah. and this isn't like a knock or this isn't anything bad or good. It's just an observation that I made coming into a, a, a country and seeing how people act, interact, what they get excited about. But I did notice excitement would get very high over things that we just kind of don't really pay attention to back home. Or it's not even that we don't pay attention. We just, oh, just, it's just everyday occurrences. It's just everyday stuff, you know, it's not a big yeah, deal. So, so here's a question for you then. So what we know from the science is that if you train a rat to know that when they hear a bell, they can go press a lever and get an injection of cocaine, that they will, when they hear the bell, 
actually have a little spike or increase in dopamine firing in their reward okay. pathway. So just anticipating the reward is a reward in and of itself. Yeah. Interestingly, we also know from the same science that right after they have that spike, little mini spike in dopamine when they hear the bell, it's followed by a dopamine deficit state where dopamine levels go not just to baseline, but below baseline. And that's craving, right? And then that motivates the individual to go press the lever or the, the rat to press the lever to get cocaine. So, and the other thing that, that we've discovered is that if you train a, a rat to know that when they hear a bell, they can press a lever for cocaine, and then you don't deliver the cocaine when they press the lever, there's a huge decrease or a plummeting of dopamine levels far below baseline. So an anticipated reward that is not a forthcoming leads to a very sharp dopamine deficit state, which is a state of craving, restlessness, anxiety, irritability. So are you finding that with all these people so excited about small things like lunch, do they then, is there a come down when like the lunch turns out to be not all that exciting? <laughs> no, I don't think so. I, I, you know, I think it's just, part of the fabric of, of, of American society. Um, this, you know, you'll see it in, 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 um, college football games. You'll see it in, um, just going to any event. Like I said, again, the, the mundane lunch, dinner, meeting friends. Um, yeah, I don't know. I, I don't, I don't necessarily think that there's, a uh, the come down, like you said, with, with the rats, but that's <laughs> a bad, bad, uh, yeah, but it's just, yeah, I don't know. It's, I, I haven't like analyzed it too deeply, but it is just something that I've noticed that is visibly different than perhaps Israel, European nations. And, right. Well, I'll tell uh, you other places. one of the things that is true in the United States is that, that we do have this very strong notion that if you are a healthy, mentally healthy person, you are happy, mm -hmm. right? You are, you are positive. You are excited. You are upbeat. And if you're not feeling that in your life, then you are sick and there's something wrong with you. And I think that's not as pervasive in other cultures. I think there's more room in other cult cultures to be sort of grumpy or dysphoric or, you know, um, just not super positive. Like there's room for people to be flatter emotionally or even be kind of chronically disgruntled. There's not a lot of room for that in American culture. If you are like that, people are like, you must be depressed. You need to go see somebody. And people think that about themselves too. It's like, oh, I'm unhappy. There must be something wrong with me. Maybe yeah. I need to go see. And then you start, you start getting medicated and all the, all the bad stuff that That's comes right. with that. But even just like small things like um, smiling on the street. Most places in the world, people don't smile at you. <laughs> no, when you pass them, it just doesn't happen. And then here, if people don't smile at you, and, and not everywhere, obviously in New York, no one smiles at you when you walk down the street. But if you walk around, you know, most places in the U.S., especially smaller towns, people, you know, they'll give you a little nod, a little smile. And then if they don't, you're like, what's wrong with them? Yes. You know, right. But that doesn't happen anywhere. Like walk around mm -hmm. Europe, try to get a smile, try to get a nod. No one cares. No one. Uh -huh. just, no, that doesn't happen. Yeah. 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 I, re I remember traveling in uh, Germany with our small children and it was so weird because in the United States, everybody stops to, you know, sort of adore a, a small child and nobody stopped in Germany. <laughs> <laughs> nope. Don't care. <laughs> they just don't. It's just completely yeah. different. Yeah. 
Um, all right. So I want to utilize our time um, the best that I can. I want to talk about a topic that might be a little bit uncomfortable. And I'm assuming this is why most people would rather navigate around this rather than addressing it. Um, but I've heard you've talked about it. And again, it's one of those issues that I think is very important. Um, porn addiction. Right. It's more accessible than ever. Uh, the content is getting more uh, violent than ever. And it's really become mainstream with OnlyFans and, and other platforms. I think other than really other than Facebook, maybe Instagram, it's really accessible everywhere. Twitter, TikTok, and even Instagram to an extent, it's kind of like, I don't know, soft porn, you could say. Mm-hmm. But you don't even need to go on all the hardcore sites because right. it's really all accessible right there. Um, can you elaborate maybe a little bit and, and, and I don't know, share some stats on, on uh, what do you think, what percentage of, of men are addicted to porn? Like what are you seeing happening with men that are getting addicted to porn? Um, probably I'm assuming younger and younger. Uh, yeah. yeah. Well, what I have seen in my practice is growing numbers of men of all ages coming in with very severe porn addictions using 10, 12, 14 hours a day, um, developing, um, you know, physical problems as a result, uh, you know, inability to, um, to ejaculate, retrograde ejaculation, uh, pain with ejaculation, um, very, very depressed, anxious, and even suicidal, and yet unable to stop. And almost always they will say that it's the the portability of the phone and yeah. the kind of infinite access afforded by the internet today that makes it so difficult for them to, to get a hold of their addiction. Um, it's very hard to get numbers actually on how many people are addicted to pornography. First of all, some people are addicted and don't know it, but many, many people know that they're addicted and yet would be very reluctant to be forthcoming. There's a lot of shame and stigma about addiction more broadly, but there's even more shame about pornography addiction um, than than with the other addictions. Is my my impression? You know, there's it's just so incredibly stigmatizing, especially in a hashtag Me Too culture, where you know men are already struggling with how to navigate um, you know consensual sexual relations uh, with other people. Um, it, you know, women too, but especially men, I think that's also driven a large number of men to pornography to avoid the, you know, complexity of real life. But really it's, it's the almost infinite access to these potent images, including real life people, you know, that you can get on the other end of, of the internet um, that can satisfy you or try to satisfy you in, in myriad ways. Um, and just like with other addictions, people usually start out using pornography for fun or to solve a problem. That problem can range from boredom to insomnia to anxiety, you name it. Over time, if it works, they start using more and more. Then they need more potent forms to get the same effect. So, you know, they maybe had vanilla toast pornography to start with, but that pornography becomes more and more deviant over time um, in order to overcome the tolerance um, of repeated use. And ultimately, you know, they find that it's interfering with their lives. They have a double life. They're secretive about it. Um, they're, they're less interested in having sexual relationships with their partners uh, because they've sort of exhausted themselves, um, you know, on, on pornography. Interestingly, one of the things that I think people don't appreciate about pornography addiction is that on some level, it's not really about sex. 
It's about escape. It's about numbing yourself. It's about distracting yourself. It's a coping strategy for uncomfortable emotions. Um, it's a way to forget and disappear for a while. It's it's just sort of the medium that works for some people. Some people, it's alcohol. Some people, it's cannabis. Some people, it, it, that same function is fulfilled by pornography. It's It's a really tough one. How does it ruin their lives other than obviously like being addicted, but like how does it extrapolate to not having, you know, uh, intercourse with your significant other, I don't know, taking time away from maybe doing work to watch porn? Like how does it manifest? Well, just like any other addiction, um, you know, over time people use more and more. So just the sheer amount of time that people spend is in, in interference. They, they, then they're not as, as able to be present for others. Even when they're with others, they're obsessively ruminating on getting back to their pornography because they're in a craving state. Um, you know, and, and then also tolerance is really, people really don't appreciate the ways in which repeated exposure to um, pornography and compulsive masturbation means by definition that people will need more potent forms or more of it over time. So then people typically then will escalate to riskier and riskier use, more deviant forms, maybe illegal forms, or maybe then meeting up with people in real life, escorts, prostitutes, um, you know, more and more orthogonal to their values, more lying about their use than partners finding out and the rupture of those relationships. I mean, it's, it's really it can have very devastating consequences. So for a person like that, is the phone just, just a no, no, because I mean, everything on the phone is <laughs> somehow in, in, in some way or another can channel back to porn, right? Even, and, and it doesn't have to be like porn exactly, but just if I take um, Instagram, that could be a trigger, right? Just like if, if you're an alcoholic and you pass by a bar that could trigger maybe a memory. It's like, Oh, I remember the good old days just sitting at the bar. I could do one drink similar with, I'm assuming, uh, Instagram where it's not actual porn, but it's close to it's adjacent. Right. Yes. So, I mean, just like with any addiction, the first step is a period of abstinence, minimum 30 days to reset reward pathways. And then it's a process of figuring out, okay, how can I move forward? We, we typically consider sex to be a part of a healthy life. So then it's a matter of defining, okay, what is, what is healthy sex for me? And what is the kind of sex that, that I need to avoid? And often for people that's defined as, you know, sex with my partner, but not sex with myself using pornography or other images. Um, but, but people define that in all kinds of ways. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And then it's a matter of figuring out, all right, what, how can I change my immediate environment so that I'm not triggered to use? And for some people that will, that will come down to, I just can't be on certain social media apps, or I can't watch certain types of YouTube videos, or I can't listen to certain types of music. Um, everybody's a little bit different, but knowing what our triggers are is really key. Why does the pleasure of everything kind of diminish over time, right? Coffee, sex, beer, sugar. Um, it seems like we need, you know, I remember now I drink a, a glass of uh, two glasses of wine and I'm good. I might, I might just go straight to sleep. But in my 20s, I was able to drink probably three quarters of a bottle of whiskey and I'd be fine in the morning. You know, I, I, I mean, I don't know, you could, I guess, categorize that being an alcoholic, 
same with weed. I used to, you know, smoke a lot of weed in my twenties, uh, started acting in my teens, but again, had to get smoke more and more and more to get right. the same effect. And the effect would actually lessen. So you have to smoke more and more. And the same with alcohol is just your body just builds, you know, a defense against it. Or like, what is the reason? What's the, yeah, what's going on? Yeah. What's going on? Well, I mean, to understand this, it's it's important to understand that the same parts of the brain that process pleasure also process pain, and that they actually work like opposite sides of a balance. And one of the overarching rules governing that balance is that it wants to stay level or preserve what neuroscientists call homeostasis. So when we do something pleasurable, we get a little tip to the side of pleasure, the release of dopamine in the reward pathway. But no sooner has that happened than our brain will adapt to that pleasure by down-regulating our own dopamine production. And I always imagine that as these neuroadaptation gremlins hopping on the pain side of the balance to bring it level again, but they like it on the balance. So they stay on until it's tipped an equal and opposite amount to the side of pain before getting off. So this is the key. The way that the, the brain restores homeostasis after exposure to an addictive substance or behavior is by tilting first an equal and opposite amount to the side of pain and then going back. But here's the second rule governing this balance with repeated exposure to the same or similar pleasurable stimuli, that initial response gets weaker and shorter, but that after response to pain gets stronger and longer. In other words, now we get two gremlins, three gremlins, 10 gremlins. Pretty soon with chronic heavy exposure, we end up with enough gremlins on the pain side of the balance to fill this whole room. And they're camped out there, right? They've got their tents and barbecues in tow. They're not going anywhere soon. And that's the dopamine deficit state. And that's where we get if we continually ingest highly reinforcing substances and behaviors. And when we get to that state, it's a very complicated state because now we need to use not to get high, just to feel normal. And when we're not using, we're walking around experiencing the universal symptoms of withdrawal from any addictive substance, anxiety, irritability, insomnia, dysphoria, and craving. And importantly, our focus has narrowed. So other things that used to be enjoyable, more modest rewards, they're no longer enjoyable because when we put those on the pleasure side of our balance, they can't compete with all those gremlins camped out on the pain side. So that's why we need to abstain for long enough for the gremlin to hop off for our brain to restore baseline tonic dopamine firing, i.e. homeostasis, so that we have a supple balance that can respond to pleasure, can respond to pain, and can readjust itself you know, through the course of our day as you know, we're trying to interact with our changing environment. So really balance and moderation is the key to everything because um, you can, you know, Drinking water is extremely healthy, but if you drink, you know, eight gallons a day, you're probably going to die. And uh, right, <laughs> so right. it's just everything is moderation. Like you can enjoy some alcohol. You can maybe even enjoy a cigarette, even though it's not healthy once in a while and uh, watch a little bit porn and go and so whatever it is that you're doing. Right. As long as it's in in moderation. Right. It's an old message that we need to remind ourselves of because we're living in this dopamine overloaded world. But one word of caution. I do have quite a few patients who I'll say, well, you know, do you, do you drink alcohol? They said, oh, only once a week. Well, that, that sounds like moderation. How about cannabis? Oh, you know, just once a week. Oh, okay. Well, that sounds like my, how about uh, cocaine? Oh, no, just about once a week. So it turns out, <laughs> it turns out that on any That's given- a little bit of heroin. Right, yeah. right. So that on any, in their minds, it's moderation because it's like just once a week of each drug, but really every single day they're doing something that is addictive. And there's something called cross addiction, 
really all drugs of abuse, all, all behaviors that are addictive, all substances that are addictive, work on the same common pathway. They all are mediated via dopamine. So even if it's different drugs, if you're doing something every day, you're essentially a daily user and, and probably in that, in that sort of addictive loop with your gremlins camped out on the pain side of the balance. Those damn gremlins. Uh, (laughs) What if, I I don't know if, if, if there is one, but if there is in your experience, is there one addiction that is hardest to beat? Uh, maybe heroin or social media. I have no idea. I'm just, or are they all the same addiction as addiction? And it doesn't really matter what the substance is. Well, you're, you're leading into a very interesting uh, area of discussion, which is the whole idea of drug of choice, which is to say what's reinforcing for one person is not necessarily reinforcing for another. So for me, it's social media, social attachment, um, you know, love and sex, but Alcohol doesn't do anything for me. You know, cannabis, not interested. Caffeine doesn't wake me up. So it's really a matter of what is the lock and key for a given individual. And for that individual, the hardest thing to, you know, to overcome is the thing that's the key in their particular lock. Of course, there are some people who are more wired for addiction generally than others and can get addicted to just about anything. But for most of us, there's some kind of specific category of substance that's really our pull and that's the one that we either have to avoid altogether or be very vigilant about um you know moderating use anna thank you so much for your time today this was very insightful uh yeah this was great thank you for coming on the podcast thank you for having me thanks for your great questions and your curiosity (laughs) um i know you're not on social media but where can people find you what are some good places on the internet well, I'm really generally not on the internet, but um, there is a website for the book, dopaminenation.com. People can check that out. That has some additional information and they can listen to your podcast. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> uh, I'll, I'll be sure to link the book in, in, in the show notes. Go check it out. It's amazing. Uh, Anna, thank you so much again for your time today. I really appreciate it. And uh, yeah, maybe we'll do this again in the future. You are very welcome. Thanks for having me. All uh, right. Take care.